You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation where we are sleuthing our way through the Disney animated canon in chronological order, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom, ever searching and looking for those hidden clues that will inspire awe and wonder and shape our imaginations. Hopefully along the way, we enrich the experience of these animated films and have some fun too. Today we're on the chase of the 26th canonical animated film, 1986 The Great Mouse Detective. I'm Josh altman Schoffer, and joining me as always, a genius twisted for evil, the Napoleon of crime. There's no evil scheme he wouldn't concoct, no depravity he wouldn't commit. Who knows what dastardly scheme that that villain may be plotting even as we speak? Michael Farmer. Hey, Michael. How's it going, Josh? <laughs> Very well. Uh, happy to be discussing this film with you this evening or this morning uh, or whenever you're listening to it. Um, and joining us, um, someone who, again, needs no introduction uh he's uh dr david grubbs of the christian humanist podcast welcome thank you glad to be here do we have any uh i didn't, I didn't prepare a, a little quote for you but oh uh, that's all right <laughs> although grubbs is very dawson-esque wouldn't you say <laughs> basil <laughs> <sighs> Yes. Yeah, I will admit that I, I, I did think that. Who's the? Uh, I, I feel like, um, although this is the first time on your on the show here, um, and actually I think our, our first time talking, maybe. Um, although I've listened to you many times. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've compared you to many Disney characters <laughs> over the over the course of these episodes. So. I, I, I think I've been mentioned a few times. All um, of the yeah. chill, gentle characters remind me of David. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that, I, I'll, I will take that as every kind of compliment. It's also difficult to I, I when you first picked this as the episode you wanted to come on, David. I, I was I was kind of curious about it because I figured you'd pick something medieval, uh, and yet there it's difficult to imagine a movie that is more attuned to your sensibility than The Great Mouse Detective. Yes, now now you, now you understand. Uh, this is this this movie is uh, my jam, as the kids say. Yeah. So what what exactly is that sensibility? Can you guys uh, elaborate a little bit on that? Now, the sensibility of the movie in general or the sensibility that attracts a David Grubbs to it? <laughs> I guess if they're overlapping so much, it doesn't matter, really. Take it, take it from either direction. Oh, I've always loved Sherlock Holmes and uh, mysteries in general. The very first uh, books I ever remember uh, reading and uh, finding immersive and uh, connecting with characters, finding uh, kind of role models, things of that nature, were were mysteries. First, Bobsy Twin and Hardy Boys, but then it really took off when I discovered Encyclopedia Brown. And so, uh, just a few years later, when I finally uh, settled into a genuine Sherlock Holmes story uh, as a kid, it was uh, it was it was almost like finding an ancestor or something. It was it was. 
uh, an exciting experience uh, that I won't I won't ever forget. And uh, staying up actually far too late at a friend's house reading his Sherlock Holmes book because uh, we didn't have it at home. It doesn't hurt that Vincent Price plays the bad guy. Uh, oh no no no! I didn't realize the degree to which Vincent Price would also be uh, in my own you know sort of pantheon of of pop culture. Because for years you've been trying to get us to do Roger Corman horror movies for the uh, for the Halloween crossover. So yes. when you've got something that's uh, Sherlock Holmes and a kind of steampunk nineteenth uh, century robot and uh, Vincent Price, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty good convergence of the things that you're interested in. Your extracurricular yeah. activities. It's a, it's a full house. David, am I making it up that you and Katie went as Encyclopedia Brown and Sally Kimball for Halloween one year? I don't think we ever did that, but that's a really good idea. Apparently I'm making it up. And I would have brought a, oh, what is it, the the, the can that you put nickels on? Is that? Is is that 25 cents a day plus right? expenses, isn't that what he charges? I used yeah, to love those like books. That. Me too. <laughs> They not were, sure how you would yeah. dress up as Sally Kimball. Do you just, like, punch guys? Maybe after we exhaust the Disney canon, we can just read all the Sherlock, are they, uh, all the uh, Encyclopedia Brown books. Nice. This is a wonderful idea. Yeah, I'm on board with that. So. All right, yeah, well, I, I agree. Actually, a lot of what you said was, was really, uh, you described my childhood as well, just loving those sorts of books and things. Um, I'm not sure why this movie wasn't part of my childhood um was a party like for, i mean we've done this several times but for you guys like what's your what's your experience with this movie i thought i had only seen it once when i was 12 or so but i remembered enough of this movie uh to where i must have seen it five or six times at least but it was not in regular rotation at the farmer house i'm not sure we owned the vhs i don't know how i saw it but i definitely did see this uh as a kid because i i predicted a lot of the stuff that happened more accurately than I would have if I'd only seen it once. I saw it in the theater not when it first came out. Um, I would have only been gosh, eight, uh, seven or eight. If I remember rightly, there was a re-release in the 90s in the theaters, and I remember seeing it in the theater. They probably re-released it in 1995. They, they usually re-release these movies every seven years. Yeah. So I, I remember seeing it in the theater then, and then uh, later my family had a VHS of it. Um, I'm sorry, 93. I don't know what's wrong with me. It's, it's seven years from 1986 is 1993. I'm not all there today. All right. Um, but, yeah, yeah, so, so I would have seen it. I guess I would have been 14, something like that. Um, and... My family also had a VHS of it, and that was one of the ones that was on a regular rotation. Uh, most of what we had was Disney. And so uh, The Great Mouse Detective, uh, which has death and uh, a genuinely menacing villain and steampunk robots and airships and uh, all, all of that stuff. Uh, was uh, yeah was one that we watched over and over again um we also had uh 
a decent collection of Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, Sherlock Holmes movies. So uh, that they, they all just sort of mesh mesh together in my imagination. I've never seen any of those Basil Rathbone movies. How how much does this follow those movies versus following the books directly, David? It's much more like them than it is like the books. Much, much more like them. Um, that, I mean, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I've always taken uh, Basil's name as a reference to Basil Rathbone. Oh, got to be, yeah. Yeah. That's what Wikipedia says, at least. (laughs) Well, and and Basil Rathbone appears in this movie as a a sound clip from the the Basil Rathbone Redheaded League from the 1960s. So when Sherlock Holmes is talking about going to see German music, uh, that's actually Basil Rathbone, and it's a recording from then because I think he was dead by the time this movie came out. Yes, he was. Yeah, that sounds right. So. Yeah, so this uh, this this movie was very very familiar. Um, watching it again uh, was like uh, was like having flashbacks. I I knew all the lines, you know, soundtrack cues, um, all that stuff. So, but it was it was still a lot of a lot of fun to revisit it because um, it had been it had actually been several years since I had watched it. The thing I'm interested in is to hear uh, any of the background stuff because I, I know nothing about how this movie got made or or what talents um, I'm I'm seeing in it beyond uh, the the few voice actors that I recognize. Um, that so I'm, I'm looking forward to learning. Well, we can start there. Maybe we can. Um, I, I don't know a ton, so Michael, you can jump in. We're we're on the details that you know, but um, this is definitely a movie that. Uh, <laughs> instead of being in danger of, of ruining the studio actually uh in some ways saved the studio it, it earned enough money that uh they decided to continue the animation department but there was some uh back and forth with it um last on our last episode if you listen to that one michael was talking about jeffrey katzenberg and uh michael eisner and kind of their roles in uh the animation department at this at this time and uh there's definitely um, just uh, the some discussion about you know if if this movie should be made and and the tone of it and those sorts of things I think Michael do you do you know further details that you want to jump in with Yeah Katzenberg hated this movie he uh, he wanted to he wanted to he wanted to push for the Black Cauldron um, and so he he has two major inputs on this movie one of them i think is kind of a net negative and one a net positive the net negative is the movie was supposed to be called basil of baker street which is what the books that it's based on are called and he decided that young people wouldn't know sherlock holmes and so uh he he pushed to have it changed to the great mouse detective uh i think kind of a silly change but you know who cares right the the movie is largely the same the thing he did that was good is that the movie originally ended with the with Radigan's airship crashing into Big Ben, uh, and Radigan was just going to die, and Basil was going to survive, and Katzenberg is the one who demanded that the movie continue inside of Big Ben, uh, which is a, a really cool sequence, I think, and and a early example of CGI animation 
as I'm sure you guys noticed with the with the gears. So I, I think in that sense, he had a much better influence on this movie, which he didn't care about, than he did on The Black Cauldron, which he cared very much about. The <laughs> the CGI thing is, is really amazing um, because the, the, it was actually um, modeled – like within the the computer, but then they they printed each individual frame and then drew over them, you know, like so it was just the wire framing of the gears, and then uh, yeah, printed out. <laughs> well, that know? that, ex- like that explains why it looks so good for 1986 CGI, because right, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's more like oh, what's the animation where uh, y- you're simply animating over the top of love. Uh, real frames of, of live action. Is that rotoscoping? Rotoscoping. rotoscoping. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That that might be closer to what's going on here is rotoscoping. Yeah, we've seen some similar things in the past where, like, with uh, Cruella Deville's car. I mean, not with computers, but like with Cruella Deville's car, they designed a model and then would film it, and then uh, they'd animate over the top of of what they were filming. That's that's why that car looks uh, kind of so accurately rendered or 3d rendered you know as we would in modern language i don't know what they would call it in the 60s when they were doing that i don't i don't know if they would use the word rendered um but then yeah uh, a similar thing here only now the the wire model is built inside of computer instead of a physical model but yeah i can just imagine like the dot matrix printers like you know like that sound like (laughs) like printing out each individual frame and then them uh you know meticulously painting over it's really uh, a fascinating bit of of uh, intersection of technology and um and, and animation, which I, I think was really effective. I, I, I really enjoyed the scene inside Big Ben, so I agree with you, Michael. That was a net positive. I didn't think about them having to print it out on dot matrix printers. That must have been such a pain. You know, our former bandmate Max Fuquay could make a dot matrix printer sing Jingle Bells. He knew what to what to print to make it <laughs> to make it sing various songs. <laughs> That's hilarious and amazing. Max Fuquay, if you're listening, you're, you're well remembered. <laughs> what a thing to be known for. All right. Well, um, yeah, the, the other thing you mentioned in there, Michael, actually there's, there's a bit of hilarity around that because I guess, uh, when he demanded that the, the title was changed, there was a, the, an inner office memo that went out that, uh, um, they, they were changing the names of all the other movies too. It was going to be instead of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, it was going to be like a lady and some men in the woods. <laughs> Isn't that that memo is a fake, right? Oh I, well, according to Wikipedia, uh, it's real. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. For some yeah. reason, I was it, thinking that so. was yeah, but anyway, it it certainly has contributed probably more to Disney lore than the movie itself has. Yeah. Katzenberg's such a boob. But the um, <laughs> but certainly what he did in terms of extending the climax, I I I don't know how you don't think that that makes the movie better. Uh, it would have been a oh, pretty yeah. good movie, but I mean that's that's one of the signature scenes of the Great Mouse Detective, and it's really well done. And I, I think what happens to Radigan in that scene is really important for reasons we can get into later. Yeah, gotta come back to that. The other kind of fun uh, behind-the-scenes thing that I uh, that I learned in the in my <laughs> very tiny amount of research this month um, was the they were when they were working out the song that they were going to do when uh, Basil and um, sorry what's his name Dawson uh, go are they they're following um, they're following the bat into the little um, what is it like a, a bar lounge thing that 
<clears throat> is over Radigan's super secret lair. <laughs> and um, so there's a song that's performed in there. And uh, Michael Eisner suggested that the song be performed by Michael Jackson. Um, on, oh, good and, Lord. Uh, <laughs> that's like the most Eisner decision ever. <laughs> that would be awful. Apparently, it was met with it was met with silence in the room. <laughs> <laughs> like when your boss says something stupid. Yeah. <laughs> they also wanted uh, the the burlesque show mouse near the end of the movie to be played by Madonna, I believe, in a kind of preview of her performance in Dick Tracy a few years later. Weird. Makes slightly more sense, maybe, but yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the less said about that that part, that song in the movie, I think the better, maybe. That that was not one of my favorite parts. Well, it's not a but, very good song. It has nothing to do with the movie, and it's un- uncomfortably sexualized. Yeah, yeah, extremely uncomfortably, I think. That's going to need star power to make it better, right? It, it just needs to not be there. Yeah. <laughs> What it really needs and what it actually reminded me a lot of was uh, there's a similar scene uh, in Rapunzel where they go into the lair and there's a trap door and they're trying to get through the trap door and everything. Um, but there uh, and and we'll get to this in you know, a year and a half when we're doing Rapunzel, you know, the all the all the villains kind of have a, a villain song, which is, you know, it just it played much better um, in that scene. So, yeah, lessons learned, I guess. Well, should we run through the. Where where should we start? Should we go should we go jump to the beginning or should we pick a pick a character? Yeah, well I want to talk about the voice acting real quick. Um so you Vincent Price is the one everybody remembers as Radigan, and it's a it's a very good Vincent Price performance. Um but also there's a couple of people who are important for the development of uh cartoons and of Disney in this movie. Um Flaversham, Olivia's father, is played by Alan Young who is doing the same Scottish accent he does for Scrooge McDuck. Uh, if you, nice. if you didn't pick up on that, um, can, uh, fidget, the, the flying bat is candy candido who has done a number of Disney properties, probably for our purposes, best remembered as the crocodile guard in Robin hood. And then, um, Toby, the basset hound is played by a guy named Frank Welker. And if you, if you follow, Contemporary cartoons at all, you know Frank Welker, um, because he does the voices for basically every animal in every cartoon released since The Great Mouse Detective. He can do, um, he can do a flock of birds in a single take is the, is the, is the legend I've heard about Frank Welker. Uh, so he does a great job as Toby the Basset Hound here, such that you, you may not even be aware that it's not a dog making the noises. That's how good he is at dogs. But he also does a number of human voices, not in this movie, but elsewhere. He's the original uh, Fred from Scooby-Doo. He also plays Scooby-Doo himself. He plays Nibbler from Futurama, Leela's little uh, weird friend, uh, pet thing. I don't, I don't know what else you would call it. Uh, what else? What else has he done? He he uh, he is Doctor Claw from Inspector Gadget. He plays nice. Slimer in the real Ghostbusters cartoon. He's Baby Kermit in the Muppet Babies. He does an, an awful lot. He's a very important um, late twentieth century voice actor. And as far as I know, this is the first Disney movie he's been in. Certainly, he's the, it's the first one I've noticed him in. So uh, you know, all praise to Frank Welker. 
Yeah, I did not know that, Michael. That's really interesting. Kind of a, a modern uh, Mel Blanc, I guess, right? Or yeah. Well, took, he, up, took up the reins, maybe. So well, such a such a such a specialized thing, too. I mean, who else does animals? So he he does some human voices, but I, I really think he's best remembered for doing all these animal voices. He's still alive, and I believe still working. But I became aware of him through the Futurama director's commentaries where the other voice actors do nothing but praise frank welker anytime anytime a welker character is on screen yeah i want to go back to fidget for a moment and then we can come back to frank welker because i do want to talk about his performance as toby because um you know i love um talking about characters that that don't speak um but the uh i think it's interesting that they used what, what was the guy's name who did fidget candy candido yeah, like he has such an amazing voice, and then to um, to ch- to change it in this way to warp it with the they sped up the tape. Um, I didn't realize it was the same guy. I need to go back and rewatch this and listen listen for it. But he's got that like amazing deep gravelly sound, and then uh, to it's it's almost a shame that they changed it in this way. Although obviously like that that sound coming out of, of fidget wouldn't have made sense. So it makes sense why they they sped the tape on it, but. Um, I hated Fidget. I, I hated everything I, about that character except the few <laughs> times when he kind of jumps out at the camera. I thought those were really well done. But anytime he talked, or I, I get, you know, it's it's just like the Goblin from Black Cauldron. You, you have this character that would otherwise be very scary, and you have to lighten him up a little bit. But I was I was quite annoyed by Fidget. There's one of these characters in every movie that annoys me, and I guess Fidget is the one in Great Mouse Detective. The jump scares are very good. Very good. I I, I mean, I, it almost it almost frightened me. Yeah, when he's in the window, like I, the, that that's the one that I thought was really good. Or or yeah. when um, when he's in the bassinet, when Olivia goes to look at the baby doll in the bassinet, and it turns out to be fidget. Oh yeah, to be fidget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys show this to your kids? I, I always, I always am interested in this question. You know, we were going to until the uh, "Let Me Take Care of You" song came on, and then my wife nixed it. <laughs> <laughs> we're not showing this to our girl. We might have to have a uh, a discussion earlier than you wanted to have. <laughs> right. Oof. Uh, I did not show it to my children either. Um, that yeah the. I, I remembered the jump scare at the beginning. Um, it, there's character death. Um, A lot of character death. Yes. Uh, Radigan is a terrifying psycho. And I, yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I don't think my children would, uh, would process that at all. Well, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. In a lot of ways, this reminds me, I mean, just remembering how old I was when this came out um, in the theater the second time and I saw it. Um, this is probably the the movie in the canon that I know of. I have never seen Black Cauldron, but pretty much everything else that y'all have talked about, I've seen it. Um, this seems like the movie in the canon that's most in the vibe of that early nineties Batman animated series kind of sensibility, Uh you know, you know, there's still, you know, there's no, 
blood on screen. There's all the rest of it, but there's, I mean, there's real violence and there's real scary, intense, um, you know, high stakes action going on. It, it, you know, looking, look, watching the movie again later, I'm thinking, I think this is why one of the reasons maybe why I liked it is, is that I also really liked the, the, the Batman animated series from the early nineties. Another landmark in animation. Yeah, I really like that comparison. And actually, I, I'm I'm normally not in favor of the uh, spinoff type things that they do with these uh, animated features, but a uh, a great mouse detective animated series that that carried that tone of uh, <laughs> the the animated Batman series could could be potentially really great. So, Josh, did you is, ever see is, Darkwing Duck? Oh yes, Darkwing Duck is another. Because <laughs> I think I think Darkwing Duck owes a, yeah. a great deal to the Great Mouse Detective, as does uh, Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. Yeah, yeah, I could see all of that. Although I mean, it's been a long time since I saw Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. I feel like it was maybe a little lighter than than this, but maybe not. Well, both of both of them <laughs> were. But I I think I think in both cases they're they're kind of spiritual heirs to to this. In fact, I think I read. That Darkwing Duck. What is his real name? Drake Mallard. Is that his? Uh, is that his yeah. pseudonym? He um he owns a, a statue or something of Basil of Baker Street, just to demonstrate the connections between the two properties. Oh, that's that's yeah, that's very nice. That's great. There's a couple little Easter eggs in here. As long as we're on Easter egg things, um, I mean the obvious one is uh, Dumbo. A, a movie that has quite a bit in common with this one in terms of saving the studio after an expensive fiasco. They couldn't have known that yeah, when they were making point. it, but um, it's it's interesting that that that's the that's the Disney character they would have chosen to put in here because we we talked about it way back when. But Dumbo was a very cheap movie that saved the studio after the fiasco of um, Fantasia, and this is a comparatively cheap movie that saves the studio after the fiasco of The Black Cauldron. Dumbo is a yeah, great deal better than this movie, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's blowing yeah, one... bubbles, right? Well, he's, he's drunk. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's drunk dr- Dumbo, it's... which is Michael's favorite. Yep. <laughs> I'm I'm here for any Disney character getting drunk and stumbling around, uh, which uh, happens <laughs> in this movie. So that's nice. That's right. We what, get that one as well. What other Easter eggs did you see, Josh? Well, I'm not sure if it actually is one. I didn't have time to look this up, but there's a like lizard that's in with yes. the mice of the crew and it's bill um, the lizard I did, yeah from uh, alice in wonderland right there goes bill <laughs> yeah <laughs> and now we know where he ended up <laughs> yeah that's true and it would have been a similar time period so i'm certain i'm certain yeah. that's um that's on purpose i believe speaking of voice acting uh, i believe that that lizard is uh is voiced by wayne allwine best known as voicing mickey mouse for about 30 years until he died recently yeah, so th- those are the two that I remember seeing. Um, I saw some flash forwards. Like I feel like Radigan's song is uh, quite similar to um, Gaston. Yes, Gaston. Thank you. And I believe um, the the name <laughs> Gaston appears in this movie. I read, but I can't remember where. Mm. Yeah, and then I already mentioned uh, the Rapunzel. Um, the, that reminded me a little bit of the Rapunzel scene. So. Yeah, fun to see those those connections, both you know, forward and backwards. I think it's interesting too, going just on on that. While we've got the Black Cauldron mentioned here, the uh, I felt like this 
this kind of um like I know there was the tension within the studio, like you were saying, like uh they like the black cauldron or not this, or some people like this and not the black cauldron and they're they were I think there was you know, among the animators and or the executives or both, you know, like kind of worrying in the studio about which direction they were going to go. But in some ways, um, I think both of them really are aiming at a different sort of demographic than than, uh, you know, some of the previous stuff that we've seen. Like both a, a similar demographic of like young boys, you know. Yeah, I, I think that's true. This is this is there's no princesses. I get there's really only two female characters, right? You have Olivia, and then you have um, the sexy burlesque show Mouse. I guess I guess Queen Victoria. And Mrs. Judson. Oh, yeah, that's right. So I take it back. The landlady. I would think oh, yeah. that this would appeal more to girls than... The Black Cauldron did just because the setting for one thing and the fact that Olivia is such a major part of the film. Yeah, I feel like this. You're right that this one like kind of you know um, toes the line a little bit better, but I, I still feel like it's a little. I mean, I, I'm thinking aloud here, which is always dangerous, but you know, I, this one really gave me more of like a rescuers type feel, not only mm-hmm. because of the, yeah. the mice, um, and I feel like. Uh, we may have mentioned this when we, when we did the rescuers as well, you know, like that it's, you know, it, it is fairly balanced. It's got a, it's got a strong female lead, um, but it's then it's also um, adventure and daring do and all that sort of stuff. So not to be overly stereotypical, but no, I mean, I, and I, I think this is, this is much more uh, aimed at men or boys rather than, than the princess films are, for example. But yeah, I would put it on par with something like a rescuers. Which could be enjoyed by both genders, I would think. In my mind, they're part of the same universe. Oh, the the mouse universe. Yeah, that that kind of parallel mouse culture that's in some sense recapitulating what's going on in the human culture. The question is, which is a better movie? Can we just call it the Disney Cinematic Mouse Universe? <laughs> Before we answer that question, Cinemel, Cinemel, no. Oh yes, yeah. Go, go with that. Cinemelsic universe. Yeah, I like that. Um, But then you have to get into all sorts of questions about uh, why the cat and the rescuers can talk to the mice, whereas no, like the cat in this one doesn't seem to have a voice, and the dog in this one does. Maybe the cat here can talk and just chooses not to. That's that's very possible. Um, yeah. Where's Cinderella fit into all this is what I need to know. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think The Rescuers is a better movie. But this movie was better, much better than I expected. I, I think this is probably a better movie, but that The Rescuers is a weirder and more idiosyncratic movie and thus might be more interesting than this one. Hmm. I can see that. But the the tone of the rescuers is so different from anything else of the Disney canon. Like it's so sad and dark and yeah. late seventies. This one feels much more of a piece with other Disney features than the rescuers does. Mm-hmm. There's even it's not I know it's not the same setting um in terms of geography, but in terms of time period and the look of the town, um it reminds me a little bit of Lady and the Tramp. 
um, mm-hmm. that the uh, especially the the scenes in Lady and the Tramp that are set in the city, um, and then also the weird, uh, you know, the 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 song of uh, oh I can't even remember the name of the of the dog, but the the kind of burlesque song in the pound. Peg. Yes. Um, I've always kind of connected those two, but maybe that's because uh, Lady and the Tramp were was another one of the movies that we can that we watched consistently. Uh, and then, I mean, the setting also connects it with uh, Peter Pan. Peter Pan would be about right. twenty years after this, but uh, that 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 London setting. So it, I think this fits much more neatly into the rest of the canon than the rescuers does. Oh, you mentioning Peter Pan there reminds me that that was the other I didn't have I didn't have a chance to go back and look at them side by side. But um, the flying over London and into Big Ben, how similar right. that was in this movie versus yeah. Peter Pan. But that, that was another uh, Easter egg ish thing that I that I saw. Well, I was just about to ask or say that the um, comparing it to the rescuers and uh, this film and which one's better. A lot of that, again, could come back to which one you just like watched more as a kid. So I, I, I had a lot of familiar with, familiarity with The Rescuers, whereas for this one, I didn't have as much familiarity. But I, I did find this one to be surprisingly good because I think I had in my mind an idea that um, that we weren't going to see a good movie until um, uh, Little Mermaid. But uh, Black Cauldron was surprisingly good, and this this one was surprisingly good. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it the best of the best by any means, but it was it was much better than I expected it to be. Yeah, it's solid. I would I would say it's better than um, probably better than the Black Cauldron, better than Fox and the Hound. I mean, I, I think I think it's it's a, a you know it's a low second tier Disney movie. Yeah, and I was surprised by the amount of musicalness that we got in this one because I feel like. That was my other um, imagination in my head of the way the Disney thing went, is that they didn't really break out the the musical stuff until Little Mermaid, which obviously Little Mermaid is much more of a musical than this is. But um, yeah, I mean, Radigan gets gets his big big number, um, which is seemed I don't know, it just seemed very um, like the classic villain songs, which we haven't we haven't. Yeah, that's true. It's been a long time since we heard a villain sing a song about how great it is to be evil. <laughs> it's wonderful. I'm trying to think of what the last one was. Yeah, it might have it might have been uh, Peter Pan. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. But I would I would have to look at the I don't have the list of all the movies in front of me, but that's the one that's coming to my head too. Is Great to Be a Pirate or whatever their song is. <laughs> uh, does Shere Khan sing a song in the Jungle Book? Certainly the the apes do, if you, if you count them as a villain. And Mad Madam Mim from The Sword in the Stone. Yeah, Mad Madam Mim, you're right. That that would be nearer in time. <clears throat> Excuse me. Also, the wonderful yeah. thing about Tiggers, that's, uh, I consider him the villain of... <laughs> <laughs> you, and, you and Rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> Oliver and Company had a lot of music. Yeah, yeah but we haven't, we're not going to talk about that for a couple months. Well, I know. I'm just saying, if you're not expecting... Um, if you're not expecting music until Little Mermaid, uh, Oliver and Company's before then. That's true. Yeah. I feel like that one's, um, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll get there when we get there. I think in my head, um, 
because most of the songs well maybe that's not even true what i was gonna say was in in my head that's like a billy billy joel soundtrack in the same way that like (laughs) later we get get elton john or uh phil collins doing disney disney movie soundtrack song things you know which has but i don't know i'm talking in circles on myself now because lion king is definitely a musical so but tarzan is not so or is it i don't know I don't know. We'll go to define musical at some point. I do like that in this movie, um, the music is all part of the all part of the ways in which this villain demands that his setting be a production for his personality. Um, it's, mm. You know, uh, two out of the three musical numbers are feature him as the singer um one performed one pre-recorded um you know the other i will pass over without speaking in 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 less and until we get to it um but uh the ways in which uh radigan chooses (laughs) musical theater and show tunes (laughs) as his as his uh form of of self-expression i think is uh, a lot of fun yeah, well, and it's that it's that British music hall tradition too, right? That's the that's the kind of uh, genre of his two songs, anyway. I do love that he he is such an arrogant fool that he has to re- record a vinyl record of him singing a song to kill Basil and Dawson. Yeah, that that part of the movie actually had my mind like really like like in a whir because um like I've been in recording studios. Like I know how much work it is to put a song together. You know, like it's not just a uh, sit down and do it type thing. So like the the composing process, the recording process, like he has engineers on staff and then, you know, it takes a long time to get final press. <laughs> how many engineers do you think he paid? Yeah. Also, I mean, he's got vinyl being pressed in the 1800s, late 1800s. That's pretty impressive. So I don't know. There's there's a lot going on with that. That I, but I, but completely to your point, uh, David. Like I, I was in the same mindset. Of like I love this. Like I love that he went to the trouble to do all this because it's just so perfectly in line with what, like you. By that point in the movie, you believe that he would do as a character. Like it, it was it was completely wonderful. I will say I don't think the quality of those songs is great. No, they're not great songs. Um, the second one has a lot of repetition, but it's mostly because you know the focus is not on the song. The focus is on what uh, Basil and Dawson are doing during the song. Um, so there's repetition going on in the background because they're assuming you're not paying much attention. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they do what they're supposed to do, and the, the sequence for The World's Greatest Criminal Mind is a really excellent yeah. one, and, and I, I love how... The, the kind of joyous atmosphere of that song very quickly turns to menace when the drunk mouse says rat instead of whatever he was supposed to say. Yeah. Well, the, it's kind of sad because they set the rhyme up. <laughs> it's true. Like, what's he, what's he supposed to say? Yeah. <laughs> the world's greatest criminal hat. I don't know. <laughs> well, he does wear a hat. <laughs> With the world's greatest criminal cat? I don't, he just didn't have a lot of options, really. 
It was, but yeah, I, I mean that 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 is a real really effective turn from that lighthearted song to him feeding his henchmen to a enormous monster. Oh, Bartholomew! Yes. Oh, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's like yeah. the jump scare at the beginning. Um, to to me, that really uh, I, I remember as, as as a kid. To me, that really communicated that this was a movie where they weren't going to they weren't going to play around. Um, you know, the threat was real. The stakes were real. You know, they're going to go for the jump scare. They're going to go for. They're going to menace children. Um, in that ways, maybe it is closer to rescuers. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, what do you make to the threat to the child? Did you did you feel as on edge? I mean, we talked when we talked about the rescuers. We talked about the the kind of specter of child molestation that hangs over that movie. And while the threat to Olivia in this movie is real, I suppose I didn't get the creeps the way I got from that movie. Maybe because human beings weren't involved. Yeah, that's no human child. So yeah, it's. Also, I don't know. I don't know what Charles mileage is with Olivia. Um, I love her. Yeah. I usually hate the cutesy characters, but I love Olivia. What do you love? I just think she's super cute. All right. And kind of spunky, you know? Like, she. There's only three characters in the whole movie who call Radigan a rat, and, and she's one of them. Yep. Is it the accent? I love. I I, I, I like the accent. Um, I love. I love that they're Scottish, where everyone else is English, and then Radigan's whatever Radigan is. <laughs> yeah, I I I I thought again. You know, I've I've been on record in a lot of these episodes about hating the cutesy characters, but here's one where I think it's done really well. Yeah, feeding Agreed. Toby, feeding Toby a crumpet. Rubbing yeah. his belly. Yes. Yeah, her and Toby really, uh, they're they are very charming in this movie. I really enjoy them together. I agree that the, the menace is a little different in this movie than uh, the rescuers. Um, I did feel the, the tug of the, you know, the using the daughter to to threaten the father is like, that's just low down. And I mean, that really made Radigan super evil. So, well, as soon, and as soon as I saw him give her the toy for her birthday in the, in the opening scene, I knew that Radigan was going to destroy the toy. And there's something so brutal and unfeeling about that. Somehow that's worse than kidnapping her. Maybe, maybe yep. it just demonstrates my misplaced priorities. <laughs> well, it well means he's able to, He's able to use violence on the toy, which, um, you know, Olivia gets tossed around, but like she's a little animated mouse. You get the sense that she's bouncy. Um, but uh, that toy, the way it, the way he squeezes the toy as his face becomes just feral, um, the the eyes go bloodshot, you know, like like that act of graphic toy violence um is uh I, I think a really effective way of showing just how few limits this character has if you push him mm-hmm. well and the toy is a physical symbol of the relationship between father and daughter which i mean basically every society in the world thinks is sacrosanct and that, that he, he that he would just so casually 
destroy it really does show you what a monster he is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The character, you, you mentioned his face contorting when he destroys the toy. The character animation on Radigan is amazing. Probably the best piece of animation in the whole movie is, is what they do with him during that scene. But he he is stunningly animated throughout in a movie where the animation is mostly just so-so. Yeah. I mean, the, he's... The, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I, th- I think I've mentioned y'all saying this, but frequently, not always, but frequently, um, particularly leads... Uh, lead characters, the animators will study the uh, the body language and the expressions of the voice actors, uh, often to take cues for um, for the animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Vincent Price does not look at all like Radigan. Doesn't move like Radigan. Um, so Radigan's physicality is such an interesting. Uh, his his build, uh, the yeah, everything about his 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 body language and his facial expressions is so much more uh, extreme and malleable. Um, his face can assume so many different shapes uh, as he has these you know just sort of grand extreme over the top emotions. Um, well, he's also physically twice as large as every other character, every other mouse character, anyway. You yeah. know, he's he's so big, um, and 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 yet because he's trying to present himself as a gentleman, it's it's like yeah. you have something very large and threatening squeezed into as small a space as possible. Look at what his feet look like. When he when they get knocked off him in the in the Big Ben sequence, versus what his shoes look like. This is a guy who is literally squeezed into a squeezing his body into a suit of clothes that's too small for him because that's what he wants to be. And I, I think I think really every piece of the animation of Radigan uh, demonstrates that, such that when when he finally does become a rat in the Big Ben sequence, when he when he reverts. Uh, he's really, really scary, and yet you feel like this is what he's been the whole time. The Victorians have one of their one of their great fears is uh, devolution. That's what that's what uh, Dracula is all about. If you've ever read the original Dracula, he's closer to a werewolf than what we think of as a vampire. He's covered with hair. He can like scale walls. Of course, he's he's literally turning into an animal and he's becoming a bat. Um, so I, I think this really fits in with Victorian anxieties about devolution really, really well. I don't know if they had that in mind, but it certainly works. That's cool. And there's a little bit of that rat from Lady in the Tramp. Yeah, that's true. Rats are scary. So this says that uh, Glenn Keane decided to base the stature of Radigan on then-Disney CEO Ron Miller, who I think was ousted during the making of this movie. So, um... <laughs> that's Ouch! Cool. 
<laughs> I'm I'm not entirely sure if it, like if that's exactly where the the timelines line up, but I, I believe that's right. So um, yeah, just to get to your earlier point about you know who do who do the animators study, but I think your uh, your point on devol- devolution, um, Michael, is really insightful. And, and uh, yeah, something there's something uh, very uh, rich there in that idea of you know the. <clears throat> I don't know, the wolf in sheep's clothing, in this case, the rat in mouse's clothing or something, you know, like there's there. I feel like that that sort of imagery of of the evil that's just behind the thin veneer um, goes, you know, goes deeper than than the Victorians, obviously. But, um, yeah, tying it, tying it to that devolution, I think is really interesting. Well, and there's a there's a class commentary there as well. Right. This is this is a, a low class person who is pretending to be a high class person. And there's also something um, pathetic. There's some pathos in that portrayal as well, that this is a person who is so unhappy with what he is that he has to pretend to be something else. And the veneer is so thin, the the yeah. the, the, the structure is so fragile that when that guy, when the guy drunkenly calls him a rat, he he loses his mind. He goes mad with rage and, and murders him. So I mean that's scary, but in another register, it's it's kind of sad as well. It's it's hard to feel too bad for Radigan as he is a psychopath, but <laughs> but an incredibly charismatic uh, psychopath. Uh, um, I mean, you can kind of see why a certain sort of person would uh, admire him as they fear him. Um, the 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 strength that he has he's so mercurial he's so uh, uh, capable of sudden enormous violence but also he can be suave he can be peremptory he can be inspiring he can be uh, analytical um, I mean that there's something almost Olympian about him that you know uh, that uh, a, a certain kind of creature would want to, would want to placate him because he's just so uh, what's that? What, overawing is it, I guess is the word. He's the uber. He's the uber mouse. He's he's Nietzschean. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And I mean, really, if you think about what Nietzsche's whole thing is, it's a it's a kind of evolution as devolution, right? It's it's the the Uberman looks more like an animal in some ways because he's so vicious, so powerful. Mm. So uh, Radigan's a, a really remarkable character to me. One of the one of the great Disney villains, although one that doesn't get a lot of play anymore because this movie is largely ignored. But yeah. uh, it's a great performance, and especially it's it's well animated. Yeah, and Price was like in his seventies when he does this. It's it's really amazing. The other thing that interests me about the relationship between Basil and Radigan is that Basil, as the quote Josh used about me at the beginning of the episode, demonstrates, sees Radigan as a worthy adversary. But Radigan spends the entire his his entire first speech in this movie saying that Basil is a cut rate detective, that he's not up to his uh, level. And and that's fascinating to me that that 
Basil respects Radigan in a way that Radigan doesn't respect Basil. But he but he does feel as if he's plagued constantly by Basil. You know, the 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 bit, the bit where he pulls out the harp and the lighting changes and he's like, "Oh, it's Nezim Benalden, champagne and caviar." <laughs> <laughs> I've had my share of adversity. Um yeah, that that's so, so Basil is, you know, Basil's the the rock in his shoe, right? Um, the the one nagging annoyance that he's that he's never been quite able to uh, shake or resolve. But I I don't think that he could imagine an equal to himself, though. Not this character. And Basil is an interesting uh, foil to him, though. I mean, they they've got some interesting sameness to them. Uh, in that they both they both have wild mood swings. Yeah, except that Radigans are manic and Basils are depressive. Yeah, yeah. But and, and Basil has all of the class and breeding that Radigan wants people to think he has. Yeah. I just wish he had a last name. It's Ratbone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Because everyone else is, you know, Dawson is Watson. Uh, Mrs. Judson is Mrs. Hudson, which is, you know, Sherlock Holmes landlady, you know, upstairs. Um, Toby is, Toby is actually from Sherlock Holmes novels. Uh, he's, he's, um, mentioned in at, at least one of the novels, The Sign of Four. Um, so for for there to be so many kind of Sherlock Holmes, Mouse World counterparts, and then Basil just gets like one name. Um, I, I don't know. And I remember it always, that's it, it's always felt weird to me. Everybody else gets surnames, but not Basil. I was I was uh, wondering going back a little bit to uh, you know this this notion of um, the nemeses and uh, the the traits that they share and the you know what what separates them and the the respect one feels for the other and all of that like Basil definitely um, he seems especially at the beginning of the movie like this is almost a like he doesn't care so much about the um, the the greater mouse world or the, the good of mouse kind or, or anything like that, you know, like he's not really interested in Olivia's case at all. Like he's not really doing any of this. It seem seemingly, um, out of, out of some sort of love or charity. It's really, it does seem more like a chess match to him. Um, and he's just, you know, he's just trying to, uh, defeat Radigan in, in these mind games of, you know, they're, uh, he he happens to be on the good side and Radigan happens to be on the bad side. But um yeah, I don't I don't know if it's something I, I don't know if that's the 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 lack of respect that Radigan has for Basil is is kind of the, the thing that separates them as, you know, who who falls on the good and who falls on the bad. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, Radigan has no respect for anybody. Um, right. 
but like like so there's a a narcissism of of some sort there but um yeah i don't i don't know does does uh does does he change in the movie does does basil really change does he you know other than achieving victory so he he gets olivia's name wrong at the end of the movie as he does at the beginning but correct me if i'm wrong he the way he's looking at her when he says her name wrong at the end seems to me like it's a joke whereas at the beginning it's that he couldn't be bothered to listen to her name so there there does seem to be some sort of affectionate relationship between them that develops over the course of the of the movie yeah yeah i saw it the same way that he was kind of joking by the end um and then he does take he does take on a new case and uh he's you know he's he he doesn't want dawson to leave he calls dawson his um what does he call him like his trusted <laughs> or something i forget what he calls him but like he says he works on all his yeah cases he works on all his cases with him like obviously one wanting him to stick around so yeah there i mean yeah i guess there there is some character growth there but as far as like a hero's journey, he doesn't really take it seemingly. Well, and I think I think this movie does a really good job of capturing something that a lot of Sherlock Holmes adaptations don't, which is that Sherlock Holmes is not a nice person. He's very unpleasant. Um, I, I think I haven't seen it, but the Benedict Cumberbatch version supposedly does that well too. It makes him, I think, autistic openly. Um, th- really, the best version. Of Sherlock Holmes for showing the unpleasant side of the character, though, is House, the the medical drama that's very closely based on Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you know, he's he's a very unpleasant person to be around. Nobody likes him but Watson. They they just need him because he's so incredibly smart. Um, and this this movie I thought really covered that surprisingly well for a children's movie. He's not cuddly. No. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, he's he is as theatrical and self-aggrandizing as Radigan is. Um, but he has he has limits. He has a kind of manners <laughs> that Radigan doesn't have. Um, he will at least he at least knows what the courtesies are, even if you're pretty sure that he, that he doesn't mean it um, when he defers to someone. And, you know, my uh, one of my favorite parts of the movie is when he 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 insists that uh, Olivia is not going to go with them as they search for her father. And he stamps on the ground and shouts, that's final. Next scene, here's Olivia with them. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Gilligan cut. Is that what that is? <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, where where somebody says they're not going to do something, and then it there's a quick cut to them doing it. That's a, that's uh, that's a Gilligan cut. All right, <laughs> that's great. That that originated with Gilligan's Island, I guess, or are they popularized. It movies? was at least it was at least popularized yeah. with Gilligan's Island, perfected, perfected by Gilligan's by Island. It, yeah, that's really great. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, that was that was, that was one of the scenes that I really uh, got a good chuckle out of. Also. But I wonder what this says about like our like overall just view of like like heroics or heroism or whatever because it's it's not enough. I mean, I th- I think the movie is clearly teaching like it's not enough just to be very clever because Radigan is in some ways more clever than than Basil. Like he never is able to 
uh, defeat him until the very end. Um, and it's not just Braun, you know, um, but at the same time, like, I, I don't know, there's a, there, yeah, the, that, especially the cleverness side, like it, it cuts just as much against, uh, the hero as the villain as a, like a mark against them as like, this is not enough to be a hero. Like this isn't, this isn't what makes you good, you know? Yeah. But superior Radican intelligence yeah but Radican doesn't have a Dawson to kind of ease the mm. humanity well yeah and the, the closest he has is Fidget whom he really for no good reason throws out of the dirigible and kills uh, just before the climax of the movie we even we even see him hit the water you know <laughs> you know like uh, it just unceremoniously murders him it reminds me of that scene in did you guys see the movie Mystery Men yeah, yeah. Where Casanova Frankenstein, just to prove how he, like literally on screen to prove how evil he is, shoots one of his own men <laughs> just for no reason, just to to demonstrate to the heroes that he'll do anything. That that's what that that's what that scene with uh, Radigan throwing Fidget out of the <laughs> dirigible reminded me. Why didn't they throw Olivia out? Like, because I think the idea was that the. Uh, the dirigible wasn't moving fast enough. They had nothing to gain from Olivia at that point. It just seems like the smart thing to do would be to kill her. Uh, but instead he kills his own man, like the one person who's super loyal to him. Yeah. He's evil. Um, I, I don't know what this is, what it, what this says about me, but I had the weirdest pseudo memory of seeing a scene of fidget crawling out of the bank crawling out of the river right it's not in the movie but for some reason i expected it when i rewatched it it's like it's like in my head i had i had retconned that moment to where fidget makes it and had so kind of told myself that story that when I rewatched it a couple weeks ago, I actually expected to see it and it was not there. Must have been very traumatic for you, David. I guess so. <laughs> that I that you know, that I I unmade it. But yeah. Uh, I'm I'm guessing I'm guessing Fidget doesn't make it. Though his wings might have slowed down his fall a little bit, right? So he's not quite, you know, terminal velocity. I don't know. I just really want Fidget to make it is the thing. Because he needs to be in the sequel. The sequel that never gets made in the spinoff series. It's, it seems like Fidget should go hang out with that little goblin at the end of uh, Black Cauldron. Yeah, they could be buddies. <laughs> <laughs> Fidget, Fidget could be... Yeah, he could, he could work for that goblin guy. They're, they're not dissimilar characters. Not at all. Well, who have we not talked about that we ought to talk about here? I don't really have anything to say about him, but we haven't really discussed Flaversham. Well, he's got the Scrooge McDuck voice, which is great. <laughs> he's a genius in his own right, too, except that he uses his genius in a completely different way, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, he, he's this guy who can invent apparently flawless life-size robots. Uh, <laughs> it, it didn't seem that similar to the Queen Victoria Mouse to me, but uh, apparently it fooled everybody at the press conference. Uh, but, but what he does instead is make very complicated toys for children. Which is a, a very Disney thing to do. Yeah. Is he a little bit Geppetto? 
Yeah, he's a little bit Geppetto. Yeah, and just the kind of um, yeah, yeah, you're right, Michael. Like there's there's that the consistent theme through these movies that that the um, doing the thing for the children to bring just joy and and laughter and imagination to a child is actually the most like honorable and noble thing that you could do. Mm-hmm. Though the scene in the toy in the uh, the human sized toy shop is super creepy. I I, I can't imagine ever wanting to play with a doll like any of those dolls ever again there are a lot of creepy dolls in this movie yeah (laughs) Yeah, that scene i agree like that scene i was like what kind of toy shop is this but i didn't know if it was just um you know they're they're we were kind of getting their perception of it because they are you know they're there in the dark and they're looking for this villain and there there is a sense of danger and so like we're kind of getting their perception of all those dolls versus like (laughs) this is what you would actually go in that store and buy but yeah yeah i agree Uh, super creepy when the doll's head breaks but the eye opens and closes oh yeah (laughs) ah no thank you really yeah very disturbing (laughs) moment (laughs) You can tell the animators are having a lot of fun with that, I think. I think that's the best scene, though, for kind of imagining what it would be like to be that size in a human scale world, though. Um, and it's it's one of the very few in which it's it's very clear that they are that they are in in the human world. You get kind of the gestures to it. You know, you see the bigger buildings and then there's the mouse hole kind of down below or. Um, they're riding on the kind of the the steps of the cab, things like that. But it's th- that's the one scene where they're really mostly interacting with things that are out out of their scale, and all of these toys become threats. I'm glad I'm not a mouse. Mostly. <laughs> Did, were you guys kind of weirded out by the fact that there is apparently a mouse Queen Victoria who parallels the real Queen Victoria? She looks just like her. She, they, they start, they're, they're apparently ruling at the same time. If, if Mouse Queen Victoria is deposed, the entire British Empire is going to fall. There's also obviously a mouse Sherlock Holmes and a regular Sherlock Holmes. Yep. Do, do all of us have mouse versions of ourselves who live parallel lives, uh, <laughs> beneath the floorboards of our houses? Is- and what happens if I accidentally step on the mouse me? Do I die? <laughs> <laughs> or if you meet Mouse you, um, yeah. It's like that scene in Back to the Future. Back to the Future 2, where you look at each other and pass out. I'm a mouse! <laughs> um, oh, gosh. Yeah. The, uh, this, when we're very first introduced to uh, Dawson, and he's talking about uh, why he's come back to England. Do you, do you, do you remember the circumstances? He was fighting in Afghanistan. Yes. So he was, was injured did in the, the, war the in Afghanistan. British mice go to war with the Afghani mice? Like th- this movie leaves open <laughs> a whole host of questions about the interactions between the the world of vermin and the world of human beings. Well, and, and that's exactly what why Watson comes back to London and is looking for uh, looking for a place to live um, when he first meets uh, Sherlock Holmes. Right, he, and all of that would be fine, except 
Except that there is a real Sherlock Holmes in this universe too. Yeah. But like if they if they just didn't have the the Sherlock Holmes, this would be fine. But there there really is something strange going on here, where everybody has a a mouse version of themselves. Every real person in the movie has a mouse counterpart. It's that's just bizarre. <laughs> I guess it's in the source material, but I haven't read the source material. Yeah, I, I my my big question on that was who is paralleling who? <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, they, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> Somewhere. Also, mice don't live as long as people. <laughs> as far as you oh. know. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in this universe, there's a podcast happening right now with all of our mouse counterparts. They're <laughs> discussing the same <laughs> question. <laughs> well, they must be watching a movie wherein there are even <laughs> smaller versions of the mouse versions <laughs> of our stuff, right? So they're watching, like, the great flea detective. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I haven't had this many questions about a movie universe since I saw Cars and wondered if they just evolved that way. Well, but it's like, uh, it's like Rescuers, right? Like, why would the mice have their own, apparently, UN, you know, and all the rest of it? Although at least there... The UN does not do what the UN does in our world, right? Like yeah. what, what what looks like the UN is just a rescue organization, which is is far more uh, practical than anything the actual UN has ever done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the the tight parallel here is very strange, even down to uh, biographical details. You know, both of the Watsons getting shot in Afghanistan, though the Wat the human Watson is already in London. Right, he's already upstairs. They've already met. We get to hear them. Yeah, they're they're going to the redheaded league. Yeah, case. so the so the mouse world is not in sequence with the human world. I just kept waiting for Basil to take a big snoot full of cocaine, <laughs> like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing if like there was a scene where he snorted a line of powdered cheese or something? I'm not sure that would make it past the censors. <laughs> a line of Parmesan. A line of Parmesan, yeah. <laughs> if anyone's doing cocaine in this movie, it's Radigan. <laughs> That's true, yeah. That would explain a lot about Radigan's personality. Dude is high. <laughs> David, the the mood swings where he gets suddenly depressed, is that out of the source material? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's in the... Um, Sherlock Holmes has... I mean, he he has fits of mania and fits of depression. Um, the way that Watson describes it is that uh, when a case is going well, he will work for like 48 hours straight. He'll live off of coffee and tobacco. He'll get an enormous amount done. Um, he'll be optimat, optimistic. He'll talk fast. And then when he hits a, an obstacle, he just crashes. And he won't get out of bed for days at a time. And... Uh, and that's when he does. That's when he does drugs. That's when he does drugs. Man, that uh, describes my life in graduate school. Yeah, I, <laughs> which I guess is kind of a joke, but not really. Like I, I relate to that. Yeah. So the um, the way that uh, Basil comes into the when when he runs in the first time, uh, the, you know he's you know, in disguise and then he races to his laboratory and he's getting everything together. And then he finds, he's trying to match the strike 
expectations on these bullets, and when they don't match, it's just all of the energy fall just just runs out of him like water, and he limps over to his chair, slumps into it, and feebly plays sad violin. <laughs> that's that's uh, it's a bit exaggerated, but that's that's pretty much how Arthur Conan Doyle describes Sherlock Holmes. Quietly, this might be one of the most faithful adaptations of the Sherlock Holmes stories that's ever been. Not going to dispute it. I mean, the, the, also we have both of our hero, or our hero and his nemesis, which Radigan is Professor Moriarty, right? Right. Well, and they fall off the they fall off Big Ben just like they fall off uh, the waterfall. And is it the pro- final problem? I always want to call it the final solution, but I think that might be something different. <laughs> Uh, I think I think that's the title of it. Uh, the Reichenbach Falls. Yeah, um, yeah. He and uh, Moriarty fall. Holmes and Moriarty fall off the Reichenbach Falls uh, in in a similar way. Um, and Holmes also has kind of a uh, a last minute um, preservation from that. Um, though Doyle was trying to kill off the character and. You know, it wasn't until people protested that he retconned a resurrection. So, but in this one, we actually get to see him uh, emerge from the fall. Well, anything else to to talk about with this movie? Do we want? Do we need to say anything about the pub scene? What What about it? I think it's weird that they apparently poison their beer, but all it does is make. Dawson drunker than it otherwise he otherwise would have been. Yeah, I think that's it's like they slipped him a Mickey kind of thing to make him tractable, to make him more easily catchable, but it doesn't work on uh, doesn't work on Basil because Basil sees it coming. But the whole plan seems a little wonky because then when they show up, um, like that's like Radigan was expecting him to show up sober anyway you know so like I don't, I don't know if it was just a like kind of hedge your bets <laughs> type thing or what you know well they, i think they just wanted to have the scene where dawson gets drunk and does the can can with the burlesque mouse yeah probably because that needed to happen that scene really does just stop the movie it's so weird i mean we would have been perfectly happy with uh the Oh gosh, the what, what they were on a unicycle, like it's like a frog and a something or something else. I can't remember what it was. And then, <laughs> well, and the juggling octopus, the juggling too. like that would have been perfectly fine. It it just didn't need to be there. It's what TV Traps calls a big lipped alligator moment, uh, and that's named after a a scene in All Dogs Go to Heaven, which has nothing to do with the plot. And just kind of grinds the action to a halt and is never brought up again. <laughs> yeah. That, was, that describes this scene. And it's not even particularly well animated. There's like, there's like a weird, creepy eyedness to the, uh, to the burlesque performers that isn't there in the rest of the characters um, who've got you know, a, a life and expression to them, but there's just, it's just a weird, they're like weird mouse Barbie dolls. It's not, it's not right. 
And when the song's not very good either, if it were a really fantastic song, it, it might justify its uh, its presence in the movie. But it doesn't. It's a it's a lousy song that's not period appropriate. So yeah, I don't I don't know. Yeah, we, we always have been Michael Jackson through that when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, that would have saved it. <laughs> Can you imagine if it was Michael Jackson? And he got up there and sang Beat It or something. <laughs> that's that's such a Michael Eisner idea. <laughs> I mean, there, there's uh, a number of Basil Rathbone, uh, Sherlock Holmes movies, in which Sherlock Holmes dresses up, and, you know, puts on a disguise, and goes to some kind of a music hall or pub where there's people singing loudly in raucous cockney uh, voices, right? You know, they could have done any number of those. And it's just such a bizarre choice. Who even is that? Is that someone famous? They wanted to get someone famous. It's, it's, her name is, I, I had it and I've closed the window. Her name is Melissa something. She, she is a, a singer. She does like adult contemporary music. All right. I mean, it, it's not Madonna. It's Melissa Manchester, and she's actually uncredited in the movie. So I guess yeah, they wanted somebody famous, and then ended up not even crediting who they got. So, huh. and she wrote the song too. Ooh. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That 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 scene is bizarre and almost sinks the movie. Yeah, I mean, think about how much more you would like the movie if that had that had just not been there. Yep. I the question is, Josh, did it make you more or less uncomfortable than the amorous witch in The Black Cauldron? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the the PG thirteen moment in yes. that movie. Yeah, they're both bad. I don't. I don't. I don't have a good answer for you. They're both bad. They both. They both made me uncomfortable. Well, next month we have not Oliver and Company, but uh, a special episode on Mickey's Christmas Carol. Is that right, Josh? That is the plan. Yeah, it's kind of unusual for us to break uh, break out of a. We're not at a decade point or anything like that, but it just seemed appropriate for the holidays and appropriate for the time period that we're in. Yeah, what year uh, is that short? Um, uh, let me look it up real quick. It's it's mid to late eighties. It really is right around now. Yeah, it's uh, 1983, so we're going okay. back uh, just a couple years, because, um, yeah, we're in 1986 at the moment. So, yep, 1983, um, so that should be a lot of fun. Um, looking forward to talking that one over with you. And by um, the time by the time that episode airs, Disney Plus will have happened, and I imagine that that, ep- that cartoon is avail- will be available on Disney Plus. It's about half an hour or so. Yeah, it's it's short, so we'll see we'll see how long our episode is. I imagine I imagine we could still get an hour and a half out of it. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this has been a lot of fun, guys. I really enjoyed uh, hearing your your uh, your discussion and insights into this, and and joining with you in the discussion. Um, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. We're on the old interwebs um, at christianhumanist.org. Is that right? And uh, yes. please help us continue this conversation by finding us on Twitter. Um, I'm at the underscore alt. Michael is at Quill Bummer. And is that still right, Michael? Yeah, that's right. But it's pronounced Kel. I guess it oh, is sorry, spelled Quell. So yes. maybe that helps okay. people find it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how to pronounce anything. I, I think I pronounced ba- Basil, 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 Basil several different ways this episode. Um, David Grubbs, you're on Twitter. Yeah. 
the real Grubzy. The real Grubzy. Not like that. that fake David Grubbs from Gaster del Sol. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so for Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, I am Joshua Altman Chauffeur. I just want to gratefully say that we know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. So uh, we really appreciate you spending your time with us. We want to encourage you to set your podcast player styles to the Christian Administration network where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going goodbye so soon and isn't this a crime we know by now that time knows how to fly so here's goodbye so soon you'll find your separate way with time so short i'll say so long and go so soon goodbye <laughs>